This Talking Flutes podcast is kindly sponsored by Trevor James Flutes, making life sound beautiful. You can show them some flute love by following them on Instagram at TJ Flutes, Trevor James Flutes on Facebook and at trevorjamesflutes.com. Hello and welcome everybody to another coronavirus lockdown survival talking flutes podcast with me, a croaky Jean-Paul Wright. Actually, my voice is quite deep as well. Um, anyway, the intro music is, as usual, Besame Mucho, played by the wonderful Giovanni Perez. As I mentioned last time, I want to use this moment of social isolation to catch up with some of the wonderful flutists and teachers I know who are always too busy flying around the world performing and teaching to speak with me. It's either that or they're hiding away from me. We have been experiencing enforced governmental confinement for a while now, which for a musician not only decimates their livelihood by not being able to perform to an active audience, but which has had major effects on their ability to earn money to pay the bills. So today I am going to have a chit-chat with a musician currently residing in the US state of Illinois. Performer, flute instructor, clinician and chamber music coach in Chicagoland. I love the fact she says that, Chicagoland, since 1992. Founder and creator of Dr. Kate's Flute Camp in Naperville since the year 2000 for flute students ages 11 to 15. Creator of the fabulous Dr. Kate's Flute Tips, which you can find on WordPress or the Flute Line website. This is London Calling, London Calling, Dr. Kate Hummel, London Calling. Hello. Hi, Dr. Kate. Hello and welcome. Hi, cool. It's been um, probably about, it's well over a year since we last, I last saw you. Yeah, I think maybe it was at one of the NFAs, I don't remember. I think it was an NFA, yes. I mean, we communicate via social media, which just seems how most people communicate sometimes, isn't it? These days, yeah, that's true. And how are you? How are you um, coping at the moment? Um, coping. I mean, there, there's not much else that you can do. I mean, life's changed as we know it. Um, you know, I spend most of my time at home now um, where I was running off from one place to another and teaching in different locations every day and going off to flute festivals and conventions and things and um that's all stopped so here i am in my apartment in naperville <laughs> but you you are you, you said it exactly right you're never sort of static dr kate can be found traveling everywhere so what's it been like to being thrown back to not being able to sort of go anywhere is that strange for you um yeah um i would say yeah it has been strange but it's also been, I, I feel like I've spent the last two and a half weeks, three weeks now, trying to figure out a new pace for my life and figure out what some of the projects are that I haven't had time for because I was running around. And I think I'm finally starting to hit a stride with that. It's, it's taken that long to sort of get my head back together and figure out how to, how to move ahead. How long did it take before you got yourself into a routine because it's taken me a week because we've been on lockdown here in London for a little while it took me a week to really get the routine sorted 
because I my routine is normally I leave leave home about seven o'clock in the morning and get back about seven o'clock in the evening, and being static at home, I'm still working, but it was it was a strange feeling to get a routine where I could go out, do some exercise, come back in as required. And it took a little while for my brain to compute the fact that everything had changed. Yeah, I would say it's been a good week. It's been a, a good week and a half or so. Um, I think the, my biggest concern was making sure that I was able to schedule in all my private students. And yeah. surprisingly, my schedule hasn't changed that much in that respect, except now, of course, I see them at home rather than at their schools. So how, yeah, how, do, how do you find that, um, Kate? Um, the fact that you're sort of screen to screen, how do you find that as a teacher? And you're a very involved teacher, aren't you? So how do you find that distance where you, you're you seeing the person but not necessarily seeing everything that you would normally see when they're in the same room? Um, I feel like I have to adjust my approach um, I mean, in some ways, some ways the face-to-face -face on a screen is maybe more intimate because basically you're literally face-to-face, -face, and that's certainly an issue for for kids that you know have any kind of um, social adjustment kind of issues. I mean, I've had had kids in the past. I don't have anybody right now, but I've had kids in the past that really didn't want to do anything online just because that that kind of visual closeness was was upsetting to them but on the other hand you know i can't always i can't always see things about posture or hand position because i can't see the whole instrument i can't see you know oftentimes you know when we're doing lessons like this we're both sitting where normally i would have the students standing and i would stand up and you know get up and down as i would need in the course of a lesson so that's been very different so and do you ask ask them to stand at, uh, to or be at a certain position away from the screen, or do you let them just be where they're the most comfortable? Well, as long as I can tell that they are that their torso is straight, you know, is yeah. erect. I mean, yeah. it's hard to find the right words these days because I mean, there's no no such thing really as straight. But as long as you've got good alignment between your hips and your shoulders, and you can breathe well. Um, I'm okay with them sitting or standing, however we can get it to work. Great. So, Dr. Kate, you're going to have loads of advice during this next period. And as long as the Messenger app doesn't play ball, you're coming over very well. That's, that's, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> um, as usual, I have, I have my coffee on the standby ready. So um, I'll be as high as a kite in a few moments. So, Dr. Kate, what tips and hints... Can you give to our listeners about how they should structure their practice time at this moment in lockdown where they may have family around, they may have uh, living apartments with neighbours? What, what would your advice be? I would say communicate with the people that are around you because I don't know how you can, you know, it's, it's like we can't mute a flute, you know? <laughs> that would be a very, ri oh, it, very rich it, person who invented that. It's, it's not a French horn that you could stick a big old mute in. Um, <laughs> though goodness knows I wouldn't want to live next door to a French horn player. <laughs> no. So I, I, I think you just have to be really respectful of the people around you and reach some kind of an agreement. I mean, you can talk to people. You know, it's like if, if I make, you know, between 
three and five in the afternoon, my practice time, will that work for you? Or should I break it up differently? You know, it's like, I think you just have to negotiate with the people around you because I don't, I don't know how you can like half practice. <laughs> I really don't. <laughs> and is, are there things that you wouldn't necessarily practice or recommend people practice because of the um, apartments, the neighbors, the, I'm thinking about third octave moise studies <laughs> or, pic- <laughs> or piccolo practice. Or piccolo practice, which I, I have been doing some recently. You know, I think it really depends on where you live. I mean, I know what in my apartment, closing the doors makes a big difference. The sound doesn't seem to tra- transfer through the doors inside the apartment and doesn't seem to go through the walls that much. So, you know, I like I said, you just have to be, really be sensitive to the people around around you and you know, talk to them about what's, what's okay. I mean, in my own apartment, I try to limit my practice to, you know, daytime hours. I don't usually don't practice after 8.30 at night. I know the people that, that live next door to me have small children. So, I mean, I don't want to be practicing at 10 o'clock at night, though. If I had my druthers, I would love to practice at 10 o'clock at night, but it doesn't work that way. So, But, but for those that normally do practice a lot, and we, we're talking in excess of two hours a day, if they can only practice one hour, they should be motivated and concentrate on what they're doing to make the most of that one hour, isn't it? You know, I think if that was all the time that I had and I was limited to just an hour, um, I would say spend more time working on your skills you know, work on your tone, work on your technique, work on your articulation. And I don't know, maybe, maybe no more than a third of the time that you have work on whatever pieces. I mean, I think it's really important to not only keep working on skills, but, you know, building on the skills that you already have. I mean, obviously, if you've got more time, if you've got, if you've got two or three hours, I mean, I think the old rule of spend a third to a half of your time working on skills and the rest on your repertoire um I think it's a pretty good rule I mean regardless but you know if my time were very limited I think I would just be working on basics yep keep the foundation solid so that when we do emerge you can fly again yeah absolutely so I've had a look obviously at your wonderful website and there's lots of wisdom on there, lots of Dr. Kate's wisdom. Can we um, just touch on a few of these subjects that you've written about on your blogs? Of course. Let's look at the big one. I think it's a big one because it seems to affect everybody. And it, I've, I've met people, of really, really famous musicians, actors, sportsmen, performers, where performance nerves have hit them. And they could be really, really confident in a role, really, really confident in doing something. And then suddenly they get the eebie-jeebies. So it's not just for amateur musicians that get performance nerves. It can root through to the very, very top at times. What's your advice to someone who is beginning to feel that feeling of panic at an impending performance or an exam? I know, I know it's a really, really heavy subject, and obviously we, we can't go into depth, but I was just thinking, you know, if, if when they're, they're practicing and they know that perhaps in a week's time they've got to do a concert or a, uh, an exam, then they're feeling that pressure. How, how do you suggest they sort of um, alleviate that so they can continue to do the practice but not become a pressure cooker? Well, I think a certain amount of excitement about something coming up is to be ex- expected. 
I know when I was younger, I actually had a lot of problems with, with performance anxiety. The thing that's really worked for me is making sure I'm really well prepared. And also, I found that a lot of my anxiety was not so much about what I was doing. It was more, you know, I had to learn to trust the good preparation that I had done. Yes. Learning to my preparation. And also, you know, any performance that I have is not really about me so much. I think I had a lot of anxiety about people judging me or, you know, mm. I had to learn that you know, it's like when you go and play for somebody, they want you to do a good job. So the best thing that you can do for yourself is, is focus on the job that you have to do. I, I think everybody's going to feel some excitement, like I said, when you go out to perform. But if you're well prepared, as soon as you start, I mean, I always find that I sort of like lock into, you know, I put on my game face, I guess. I don't know how else to describe it. You know, it's just. Yeah, I, 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 get, I get that, uh, Kate. I really get yeah, that I, game I, face. I'm having a hard time articulating this. I mean, no, I get um, the game face. It's almost like an actor that goes onto stage. Before they walk onto right. the stage, they are a different person. They go onto the stage and they become somebody else, don't they? Yes, absolutely. Well, they have to. I mean, that's what their job is. That's what, I mean, I think when we're performing, you know, we're, we're taking on a character. We're taking on the character of the piece that we're playing. Yeah. You know, each movement is going to have its own character and style and have certain kinds of requirements. And if we're like really focused on that, it, it's not about us anymore. And I, I know for me, the performance anxiety was fears for myself, I guess. Yeah. And you came through that and you now, you know, you can impart that wisdom. I like the fact that you said the word excitement because physiologically, the anxiety and excitement are very, very similar, aren't they? They're exactly the very, very similar feelings, you know, increase yes. in heart rate and palpitations and you want to go to the loo a lot and you get the heart flutters and it's just sort of changing how you feel isn't it from oh I'm feeling a bit anxious yeah. to feeling excited I like the fact that you said excitement well you know I I can think of some situations where I've had to play in a very serious somber kind of a situation where I was experiencing a lot of emotion a long time ago I had a nephew that died when he was just an infant he was only about two years old oh, I guess it's really tragic and then my family asked me to perform at this funeral and I thought, Oh, oh my God, good I grief. really can't. Good grief. Yeah, I know. I know. I mean, I didn't think I could do it because I mean, I was, I was really pretty overwrought and you know, as soon as I stood up to play, you know, it was just like all that practice, it clicked in and I was able to like step out of the emotion that I was experiencing at that point and do my job. I think we can do that, do that in much happier kinds of circumstances as well you've done the work and instead of worrying about what the audience is going to think of you or how you're going to be evaluated in an audition or whatever, just focus on the job you have to do. What have we spent all those hours in a practice room all those days? And that's what it's for. So you can step up and do your job, you know, regardless of whether it's, you know, a happy, happy situation or a joyful situation or, you know, something that's really ser serious and tragic. I mean, you can still do your job. I do like the, the word game face. It's almost as though you're saying when the nerves come on, you know, bring it on. Come on, nerves. Come on, bring it on. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Definitely. Um, Kate, also on your blogs, there's one thing I would like to, to talk about, and it's one that drives me nuts and also lots of other flute players nuts. It's a subject of vibrato. 
vibrato. <sighs> yeah. Marcel Moise didn't even really want to talk about it. I mean, he'd just like flip out. <laughs> Come on, let's, 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 let's talk huh? about it. Okay. It, dry, it drives me nuts. It just drives me nuts in that I hear people using it where I don't think it should be used. Or, and again, it's only my perception. But sometimes when, I'm, when I can hear and I'm actually noticing the vibrato, surely that's wrong if I'm hearing it and noticing it rather than it just right. being part of the performance. Absolutely. I completely agree. I'm always a, a little leery about putting out those exercises that I use for teaching people to use vibrato because I, I think it gets misconstrued as, you know, this is the way you should do, for, do vibrato. And then so you hear stories about people saying, well, I'm going to put seven pulses on that note. And I'm like, oh, dear God. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's like I was saying, you know, Moise didn't even want to talk about vibrato, but he would talk about color and he would talk about, Oh, he had, there was this really great word he had for sound, for sound. He would talk about making the sound luminous. Oh, yes. And it's so evocative. Oh my goodness. I mean, it's just like, how do you make a sound luminous? And it can be anything from a shimmer to pouring your heart out kind of with lots of intensity. I mean, again, that's something that's dictated by the music. So you have to have some understanding of the music to understand what the appropriate color would be because i certainly don't think about vibrato in terms of am i going to use a shallow vibrato or a heavy vibrato or you'd like to banish the word vibrato i'm hearing and thinking about thinking about a different type of um word for it aren't you or feeling one one of my teachers was was tom knifinger and you know he he suffered no fools and <laughs> i don't know you know he he talked a lot about the importance of having a musical imagination Mm. Um, what's that last quip at the end of his book? Um, he has this whole section where it's like, okay, here's your, here's your playing problem. And here's what the diet, you know, here's how to fix it. And the last one was, the last problem was musical deficiencies. <laughs> 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 and his response was, this is a big problem. <laughs> <laughs> Reread this entire book. <laughs> And if this, if this doesn't go, if that doesn't work, go out, sell your flute and become either a manager or a conductor. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he was so funny. So very, so very funny. Um, but yeah, I mean, I really think it does come down to imagination. So do you I think, mean, do you think it's because we're concentrating too much on the dots? We're concentrating too much on the notes rather than the story and the imagination behind what we're actually playing. Because if we actually understood what each note meant, then any emotion or tonal fluctuation, vibrato, would be commensurate with the piece we're playing. Yes, and I also think it has things, it has to do with even more things at a more basic level than that. I mean, what I'm talking about is like understanding the significance of the hierarchy of beats, yeah. I mean, it's to intellectually understand that one and three are strong and two and four are weak. Mm -hmm. But wouldn't it be nice if we could actually hear that? And you can use your vibrato, you can use your color to show that. I mean, it, it's so basic, but, you know, it's like when you hear the really great players play, that's what they're doing. Maybe at one time they, they were, like, deliberately applying it. But eventually I think it just becomes 
intuitive and it becomes habit. You always do that. And I mean, the only thing that, that, that displaces that are different kinds of accents. Yes. It's a huge subject, isn't it? And, it, and, yeah. and, and I think when I come away from it or when I'm listening to a flute, flute player, especially, or even a singer, actually, if I haven't noticed their vibrato, then I think they've got it exactly right. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree. Right. Can we, can we move on to another bane of my life? Sure. <laughs> okay. The third octave. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, I'm, I'm getting on a bit, Kate. And my, 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 I've had some great teachers through my life. And there was a time when my third octave, the amount of work I did in the third octave, the aim was to get it as comfortable as the first and second octaves and without any stress on the mouth, without trying to close the, um, the throat, and really being able to control the third octave. But I'm still hearing people pushing the third octave when we go to flute conventions. Same as the first mm -hmm. octave. Everybody wants to play loud in the bottom register, don't they? Rather than having this really round sound, they just want it to play loud. And then the higher up they go, they want to play loud. It becomes strident. You know, when, when you're always, always driving like that. Yeah. So what would be your recommendation on the amount of work that one should put in to the third octave? Bearing in mind, I, I would imagine most listeners, their third octave is not necessarily their strongest octave. In fact, I doubt if it's anybody that's listening, the third octave is the strongest octave. I've always had this idea that, that people um, gravitate toward one register to, or another. Yeah. People are more like low register people and other people are more third octave people. Mm -hmm. I mean, what are the kind of things that can go wrong in the third octave? Well, you can pinch or bite yep. or close your throat, you know, and it's like, are, are we afraid of the third octave somehow? It's like, I mean, I think the secret to controlling the third octave is um, to learn to be more open, more open in your mouth and your throat. So you have access to all the resonating chambers in your body, like, you know, your sinuses in your face, and, you know, and even your chest, because we all have chest resonance. I think you're right. Scared of third octave. Just something happens when you go above yeah, no, I, top G. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times I've, I've picked up new students that were, you know, um, in junior high or high school, and they'll say to me, well, I can't play the third octave. And, well, it's... You know, and the other thing that happens is they wind up covering a lot. Yes. You know, they're covering, they've got too much lip in the hole. And one of the most surprising things, actually, it was really, really a revelation to me. I have a, a colleague who studied a lot of the, about acoustics of the flute. And what I had never realized before was the blowhole is actually a vent as well as the open keys. Right. Uh, and if you've got too much lip in the hole, you're preventing that that venting at the blowhole mm -hmm. and you need that, you know, so it's like, you got to get up underneath the sound with your core muscles. So you maintain the airspeed and then you don't have to work so hard with your armature. You don't have to pinch or anything like that. All you have to do is shape the aperture and the sound will be fine, but you, you've, you've got to keep the air moving from, from your core muscles. So it's not really like, up around your face or even your throat it's much lower in your body so when you get your new students through obviously the first thing you're going to look at is their embouchure isn't it yeah 
One of the things I do with all of my students, and sometimes for years, is we start our lessons with just playing octaves from like low D up as high as they know. And I just, I find I learn so much about what students are doing with their lips and their aperture and how they're using their air just by doing that really basic exercise. That's interesting. And I mean, I think the kids, it, it really is. I mean, I, I can't believe how, how much I learn about what the kids are doing and how they're doing just by observing them. So, you know, I'll play it and then they play it back to me and we just take turns so they can also model what I'm doing. So I mean, it's just, how, do you, how do you go through the process of changing somebody's, I mean, that must be quite disheartening for you get a new student and you know they've got potential, but you really want to dig back to the basics of the embouchure. How do you structure that? You know, we've got something here in the States that comes out of the, the music education. It, it, it's like two different lines of, of pedagogy, I guess, if you will. On one hand, you have band directors who are starting large classes of same instruments. So they'll like start 10 flutes or 10 clarinets. And oftentimes these guys are brass players or reed players or percussionists. So, you know, they only know what they were told in school about teaching flute. So they do this thing called the kiss and roll, where they take the blowhole and center it between their lips and then roll the head joint down into, down into position, if you will. Except the problem with that is if you do that, you know, the edge of the lip, lip plate winds up too high on your bottom lip. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's like the biggest problem right there. So oftentimes that's just where I start. It's line it up where, where your lip and your chin meet, you know, rather than trying to roll it down. I mean, I think there's a lot of reasons that they get into that. Um, I had a conversation with one guy who said, he, he said that he did that because he was used to having his top lip in contact. So it relates, it, it, it's making the flutes seem more like what they know how to do. And I'm like, guys, it's really not anything like what you know how to do. Is this a completely different animal here? So, so the the embouchure can make or break a musician, can't it? The the fact that you, if you have a really tight one and haven't had the best of teaching and the best of foundations, it can really inhibit development. Oh, sure. You know, I mean, if you've got it too high on your lip too, I mean, one of the other things that's going to happen is probably going to be really sharp. Yeah. I think there's also going to be a limit to how loud, how, how full a sound you can make. I mean, you can go so far. I mean, you know, your loudest might be what a normal flute player would consider like a mezzo forte, but you can't actually play a real fortissimo. And like I said, it's going to be, it's going to be sharp. If, if the hole's more open, if it's more closed, then of course, you know, or more covered, you're going to be flat. Observing band directors for years and what they were doing and they would, students would come into my studio and I'm like, well, who told you to do that? And it's like, well, my band director told me. And I'm like, oh, dear Lord. Mm. <laughs> okay. Um, cause, so there's a lot that they don't know. I mean, the really good ones I've found are really open and want to know. And I would say the following that I've had on my blog bears that out. I've had a lot of, I've had quite a few views. I mean, you know, I guess I've been doing it for about five years now. So I have a really good solid following. I'd say that's important. And I feel sorry for teachers like you that have to take talented students and almost take them back to the embouchure foundations 
but in doing that can progress them much, much quicker. And on that, Dr. Kate, what is your recommended daily routine for a flutist? As in warm-up. I don't mean practice, I mean warm-ups. I like to do a little bit of everything. I actually kind of, I, I really like what Trevor Y recommends. I mean, I really like, you know, starting out with a melody and then playing it in many different keys. And certainly in Trevor's books, he's got lots of examples, but you can always use a melody that you like. Does that mean just playing a tune without any, without pl- placing any value or judgment on it? It's just playing something just to get those chops and the lips and the throat open. I, I feel like that's an opportunity for me to get my imagination going before I get to technical kinds of stuff. Oh, okay, I've got you, yes. Yeah, so I like to do a melody or I like to do some tone exercises. I always come back to the Moise Long Tones. I mean, that's just like the best stuff ever. Can I ask you a question on that? How do you sure. play, how do you play the Moise tone de- say tone development? No, not the not the tone development through interpretation, but the tone studies, the long note ones, without your brain starting to talk you, starting to tell you stories, or starting to lead you off into coffee or what you're going to have for lunch, <laughs> because it it just it, it it's just a note going to another note and. How do you how do you keep people focused on that note? I'm as guilty as everybody anybody, by the way. I don't know. I always I I always love that exercise because I'm always I'm thinking about is this the best sound that I can make, and how am I going to spread that sound into the next note, and how can I make that connection as organic as I possibly can? So you know, it's like my finger is riding on top of the airstream. I don't know. To me, it's as much about working on phrasing as it is about working on tone so you're literally in the moment focusing on that sound and by doing that nothing comes in that's going to take you away from what you're playing i mean you're right it is it is at least my experience of it is it's a very meditative it's almost like a spiritual practice good grief i've never looked at it that way (laughs) i see the book and go oh That's why I said, you know, it's like sometimes like working on a melody is another way way in to the same kind of thing. Sure. After I've done some work of that type, then I like to branch into scales and arpeggios and articulation and, you know, other basic skills. And, you know, it helps me approach the skills kind of practicing more creatively, too. Because, I mean, I, I have to say, I've never been able to understand people who practice their skills and are watching Netflix or something while they're doing it. No, no, uh, <laughs> no that defeats the object, doesn't it? I, I mean, I want to be paying attention to how my fingers are moving and, you know, whether the intervals are smooth and whether I have what I like to call bidas between the notes. Bidas, bidas, bidas. You know, it's like like um, F sharp to A, and you've got a dragging ring finger, so you go, ba <laughs> <laughs> And what, what, what yeah. is your daily routine? How long do you normally do your warm-ups for before you then go into um, something else? I would say it totally depends. There are times when I don't have a lot of time for an extensive warm-up, um, and I'll just, you know, maybe do something for 10 minutes and then start working on whatever I have to work on. There are other times when I'll spend... 45 minutes or an hour. I also like to do etudes. Yeah. I've I've been involved a little bit on etude of the week. When I've ever whenever I felt inspired, I mean there's often times with that I look at that and go, I'm working on my own etudes. I have good time. <laughs> <laughs> if it's something that they're doing that I particularly like or it's a, an etude that's really meaningful for me or something like that, I'll jump in on that. But 
I think I didn't do that many etudes when I was a student because there was so much of a press to um, learn repertoire and prepare for recitals and orchestra concerts and all that kind of stuff. So I didn't really do all that many etudes then. But these days, you know, it's like I've worked through a lot of the Anderson etudes and I've been doing the the first and now bouquet de temps, the donjon etudes. I mean, I know Neifinger really liked the donjon etudes and I finally played most of that book now. And I don't know, Rashada and um, Damas and there's just so many different great things and I like to vary it up. As much as I love Anderson, I wouldn't want to study diodot, but... So really, a daily routine, as you said, should be a mixture of all the foundations that you need as a performer. And you're using that as the baseline for the practice you're going to do that day. Well, yeah. And, you know, if I'm working on a piece and there is a particular skill that I'm being asked for in that piece that I think is really challenging, I will look for exercises that help me address that. Oh, I got you. Yes. I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of, you know, it's like you're working on something and it's not working. So I have a huge stack of exercise books, you know, the Taffanel Gobert and I've got all of Trevor Wise books and Paula Robeson's Daily Exercises mm-hmm. is a wonderful book. And, <clears throat> I mean, I don't know, there's just, there's tons and tons of that stuff. The Philos high, high Register Exercises, I mean, talk about a way of, you know, not just working on your high register technique, but finding that open open clear sound that's not you know shrill or strident or pinched or you know i mean those are all good ways to do that kind of thing so where can people find you dr kate i mean i know if you just google dr kate you will you come up because i did that this morning but (laughs) let's not talk about the googling dr kate tell people how they can find you and how they can get some of your wisdom most of the stuff is going up on dr kate's flute tips it's dr kate's flute tips all one word dot wordpress.com mm-hmm. i'm putting up most of my teaching stuff on that i have a new website for the flute camp yeah can i take some of the elements of flute camp and do a virtual flute camp if i needed to i found you on flutline.com yes yeah, yeah flutline.com is is my main website but the, i'm also in the process of like overhauling that so that's going to be somewhat different um hopefully in the not too distant future i mean it's one of the things i was hoping to rectify in, in in this time that we're all on lockdown i mean if they can't if they can't find you on those dr kate flute tips and you come up there's lots of references to you so you do come up yeah dr kate kate thank you so much for not only getting up early in your part of the world and thank you for just taking time to speak to me and to our audience on talking flutes this week it was really fun. Thanks for asking me, Jean-Paul. Oh, it's my pleasure. And I, you know, I, I, I have to slap my wrist as I do this, is that I remember speaking to you at the NFA and I said, we'll have to get you on to Talking Flutes. And something happened. I think my brain, so it, it sort of the, the conversation went in and was stored elsewhere. So it's lovely to actually have you on as promised. Well, it was a lot of fun to talk with you. So take care. Stay healthy. Keep, yes. sm- keep smiling and hopefully you'll get everything you want to do done before <laughs> we can emerge. <laughs> hopefully. I mean, you know, it's, it's just about like getting my head wrapped around taking care of the daily things so I can take care of this other stuff too. So, uh, Well, absolutely wonderful to speak to you, Kate. Same to talk to you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you.
So thanks once again to Kate and to you for listening in to this Talking Flutes Coronavirus Lockdown Survival Podcast. Wherever you are, please try to keep smiling through these strange times. Keep practicing and know that one day these dark COVID clouds will lift and the sun will once more shine through on us all. Take care and stay healthy. Goodbye. Talking Flutes and Talking Flutes Extra are podcast productions by the Trevor James Flute Company. For more information, visit trevorjamesflutes.com.